Turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. I believe our brother Stephen will be back next week helping us to sing a little better, uh, but I am thankful for our congregational voice thus far. <clears throat> Stephen has been gallivanting and vacationing, and uh, we've been praying that the Lord blesses this time to him. I do remind you this evening that we have a time of prayer at 6 p.m. at the at the Ross home, and we enjoy fellowship and uh, food afterwards. Uh, you know, light fare, uh, not a full dinner. And uh, we enjoy fellowship together, and it's always a blessing. I encourage you to come if you're able. Uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. I remind you this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Now, he was telling them a parable to show that all at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word to our souls and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alexander White, a great uh, preacher, said, Do you want, if you want to humble a person, ask them about their prayer life. Now, I know what prayer life struggles are like. I know what causes us to shirk the responsibility and the privilege of prayer. We're often negligent. Sometimes we're too tired. We're self-indulgent. And usually when we say that, well, I just don't have time, uh, we make time for other things. We do have time. That, that, that's never an excuse that before God we can ever give justice to. Because it's in fact an excuse. We do have time to pray. Sometimes we, we indulge ourselves far too much with other entertainments. And if we were to go back through our lives, uh, in the course of an ordinary day, we would find that we do indulge ourselves. We allow ourselves time for reflection uh, and to rest. And the fact of the matter is, uh, even though we make those excuses, we, we have no excuse with regard to the amount of time that we have to commit to prayer. Sometimes we just simply lack self-discipline or we're indifferent about prayer and we don't know yet the benefits of prayer. Or maybe we're early on in the Christian life and we really haven't discovered what it means for the soul to ascend to God and to be heard before the very throne room of God himself. Sometimes we have an overconfidence in ourselves and we think, I'm good. Things are good. I really don't need prayer like other people do. Sometimes we're arrogant and prideful and lazy and independent. Some of us think that we're doing just fine without praying and without God's help. 
And we think, and, and I'm kind of built like this. I, I tend to plan out things methodically. I'm, I'm process oriented and, and therefore I, when I know that my processes are all set and I've got my tasks set before me and I've got everything lined up very carefully and I'm ready for the day, I, I can often jump into something without, with, with, while failing to begin the day properly in the right way with prayer. Doesn't happen often, but sometimes, sometimes it does. Some of us, we simply have a lack of faith and we're unwilling to boldly approach the throne of grace that we might receive help in time of need. Some of us perhaps are refusing. We refuse to pray. We're in some state of rebellion against God. And we have no interest in praying. And although we understand fully that God commands prayer, I just won't do it. And There are all sorts of reasons why some of us do that, and that's simply sometimes because I don't know how to pray well, and so I won't begin the process of learning how to pray, or or maybe I'm determined that I've got better things to do with my time, and I, I I just won't do it. I know God commands it, but I don't want to. Or maybe it's so humbling that we get off of our knees with prayer and we're, there are tears in our eyes and we become deeply convicted over who we are and, and we're tired of that and we don't want to hear it anymore. So we escape from prayer and we have every excuse under the sun for not doing it. Some of us have listened to the satanic oppression of Satan whispering into our ears, God will not hear you. You are so filled with sin You're so unworthy. I am so unworthy. Surely God will not hear me. How can I boldly approach the throne of grace when I have done the things that I have done? Satan would do all that he can to keep us from praying. And sometimes we are simply discouraged. We're discouraged. We're discouraged over our sins. We're We're discouraged as to who we are. And we're discouraged as to our our lack of ability and lack of strength in prayer and and so we don't pray well here in this context of this passage we we have seen Jesus interacting with the Pharisees and with his disciples and and he's teaching them and he has he has begun to answer questions that related to essentially how how we're supposed to live in, in, in communion with one another within the church, but additionally also the questions that, that attend a young Christian, how am I supposed to live in a way that is pleasing to God? What, what about my life and ongoing relationship with God? What does that look like? How can I carry on relationship with God? Well, Thomas Watson, one of the early church Puritans, said that prayer, in answer to that question, Prayer is the soul's ascent to God into the very soul of God himself. We, 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 we ascend in prayer into the very presence of God and our soul gets drawn into deeper relationship and connection with God. Prayer is an answer to those questions. What pleases God? How am I to live my Christian life? And what will deepen my relationship with God? And what will help me most in serving God in a pleasing way? Not not me, but him. Well, the answer is, well, pray. Pray fervently. Pray constantly. Pray consistently. 
Pray haltingly, stammeringly, weakly, but pray. Pray in whatever state you are in, but pray. Pray in repentance. Pray with praise. Pray with adoration. Pray with thanksgiving. Pray with supplication, but pray. And throughout the scriptures, we are told to pray without ceasing. Pray and don't stop praying. If that's all you get from this passage this morning, then then you've discovered what really, frankly, lies at the secret of every Christian's vitality. And what most pleases God, when we see that he is most pleasing to our soul, when we see that he himself is the source of all our benefit. That God and our relationship with God, especially as it's seen in prayer, is our lifeblood. It's what makes us tick. It's what gives us life as Christians. It's what keeps us from crippling discouragement. Would you seek the Lord? Pray. Would you know God more fully? Pray. Would you know his word and get a glean a, a greater appetite for the word of God? Pray. Would you would you have a better marriage? Pray. Would you would you would you like to learn how to be a better parent? Pray. Pray about it. Do you have a, a significant need that you're, you're, you're exceedingly distraught over? Pray. Do you have a besetting illness that you're, you're anxious about? Pray. Do you want to know God more fully? Pray. Pray. Well, we look at the passage here before us as we begin to expound just a bit on this passage. And there's, there's also, I think, in, in this immediate context, a connection with uh, the, 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 the second coming of Christ. Christ has been discussing that with the disciples as he has discussed the kingdom of God and, and the second coming and the timing of it. And we'll see that connection in just a few moments. But there is a word that confronts us immediately as we come to this passage. It says in verse 1, Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Well, that word ought, that's a significant word. And it's one we would most likely skip over if we weren't very careful. Literally, that word ought means must or it means of necessity. So that all at all times they must pray and not lose heart. It, this word means that there is a necessity for this. There is a, a command, an imperative com, uh, sent by God, a, a necessity of duty, a command that something flowing from the command and decree of God himself that every Christian must do. And so when when Jesus speaks as as a mouthpiece of the Father, and He commands as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, He says, this you must do. Therefore, that means that you and I must take prayer deeply seriously and commit ourselves to it if we want in any way to please the Lord. And if we want in any way to have vitality as a Christian and life that we might survive in this oppressive world. This means that what he is about to say is good and necessary and right, and it is decreed that every Christian should pray. 
the blessing is that as he expounds this parable, a parable unique to Luke's gospel, we are given an understanding immediately of the dual purpose for this parable. And it gives us an understanding of its meaning. And he says, well, it's it's because you ought always to pray. It, it's it's This parable will be shared with them because God's intention is to command them to pray. And so that they would always pray so that they would they would not shirk their duty. But also, secondly, so that they would not lose heart. Do you know what it is to lose heart? I think it's kind of reaching a point where in your heart of hearts, you just let out a breath and say, I'm I'm done. I'm done. I don't have anything more. I can't go a step further. And literally in the in the, in the Greek, it, it means to behave badly in. It, it regards the quality of the thing, to allow weakness to prevail. It, it means to fail at something. So there's a connection to prayer to, to be wearied of it. Have you ever become weary in prayer? Not just tired. We're not just talking about being tired, but to be tired of prayer. If I interact with my child, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, uh, and I'm tired, that's one thing. I may be tired, but I can still function as a parent. But if I'm tired of my child, then they are the object that is in fact wearied me out in my spirit, and I have no intention of doing any good for or by them. To be wearied of prayer is to lose all sense of feeling about it. To not care any longer. It's to neglect my own heart and cultivation of private prayer and reliance upon God that I simply give up because I'm tired of praying. Are you tired of praying this morning? I hope you're not. It's the same word that's given in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Do not grow weary in well-doing. Do not grow weary in well-doing. In other words, don't get tired of doing good. And we know that we are prone to such things because we, we look at the world and we see the success like Psalm 73. Of, of the psalmist looks out upon the wicked and says they do so well. There's so much success in the world for the wicked. They seem to do well in their pursuit of, of their wicked pursuits and their selfish pursuits. And he's almost jealous, but then he perceives their end. And the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, don't, don't grow weary. Don't, don't lose heart in doing this. Don't give up. It's the same thing echoed in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. Do not grow weary in well-doing. So we understand the purpose and we understand the motivation. It's something we must do. So let's discuss this story. The fact is, here is this individual. He is, he is an unjust judge in, in a nondescript city somewhere. It could be the city of Springfield. We don't know. It could be the city of, of Nazareth. It could be the city of... Of, of Dublin, Ireland. It could be anywhere in the world. I'm sure there are judges like this everywhere. They have no consideration whatsoever the fear of God, and they have no interest ultimately in the good of mankind. They have a self-serving purpose in their standing in their judgeship. I would say that's very much like so many of the judges that reflect uh, our own judicial system in our present nation. Here's a judge who has no fear of God and no respect of man. Here's a person who is a judge who has no 
He doesn't care what anyone thinks. He doesn't think what his God thinks, and he doesn't care what you think. And if you came before him, he would have no compassion, no empathy, no concern to make things right. He has no predilection to make certain that the law is followed perfectly. He has nothing. He doesn't think about them. He doesn't care whatsoever about them. It says it in verse 2, and it says it also again in verse 4, even from the judge's own mouth. I have no fear of God, and I have no fear of man. Here's a judge who doesn't give a wit about anyone or anything. But here is a woman, and she is struggling. She's a widow. She's in need of justice against an adversary. We're not told what the situation is, but in some way she has she is she has endured injustice. And the law would protect her, but this judge will not have it. He has no interest in her welfare. He does not care. And so the judge refuses to help. There's no compassion. There's no embrace of injustice. There's no, he's completely indifferent to her suffering. And she comes and she's suffering and she, she has tears and she cries out and he doesn't listen and he doesn't care to listen. But one thing finally does get through and that is that this woman is persistent. She's persistent. And she's consistent. It seems that whenever the judge goes to his office or ascends to the bench, that woman is there and she wants to be heard. And even though he's going to ignore her that day and the next day and the next day and the next day, she's going to be there that day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And on ad infinitum until he finally will listen to her. And eventually one day he comes to the conclusion, I am so sick and tired of this woman coming to me that I'm, I'm finally going to give her justice, the justice that she deserves. He knew what justice was. He knew what the right thing was to do. He wouldn't do it until she persisted to the point of irritating him. And there's a little bit of fear, too, because the word there used, uh, she's going to drive me insane, is in fact the word that, that, that refers to boxing and bruising around the face. And he's essentially saying, she's so irritating me, and the fact is that she's going to continue to berate me, she's going to bruise my face like a, like a prize fighter. This woman has been more consistent than the person who calls you every night at supper time telling you that your, your car warranty is up. I mean, we reach a point, don't we, where we're almost ready to say, all right already, I'll buy it. Because they call and they call and they call and they call and they don't stop. And all you get is a robo-voice. And even though you would yell, which I love to do when I get a real person and tell them, don't ever call me again. <clears throat> The story is told of a man who was a rancher out in Texas, and he received, through a glitch in the system from the National Geographic uh, 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 magazine subscription, and it came time for him to renew, and, and, and so they sent him 9,730 renewal notices. And finally, he actually physically got in his vehicle, and he drove to the office with his check, and he said, please, stop sending me renewal notices, and he gave them his new subscription. You see, that, that, that's berating. That's irritation. That's, that's, that's to reach down deep into the psych, psyche of a person and say, do you really want this or not? Well, this woman has day after day. She's at the gate. She, he sees her in the cases that he has to decide. 
he sees this woman and he hangs his head and he says, I can't believe she's here again. And day after day after day this happens. And finally he says, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out, box me around the face. Jesus said, the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Something brings a change in this man, and it's not compassion, it's not justice, it's not the law. She has wearied him. He's tired out from seeing and hearing her complaints, and now his self-interest induces him to address her need of justice. That's what moves him. Now let me make sure that you understand very, very quickly, this man is not intended in any sense to be a picture of who God is. Now we'll come back to that in a moment, but let me make sure that you understand that. The argument of these verses is simply this. God is nothing like this unjust judge. God is nothing like this not this uncom- this man without compassion. God is nothing like this man who finally gets so irritated that he then addresses the need for justice. No, God's not like that. That's not the argument that Jesus has. We have to be very careful. This is a story of contrast and not one of comparison of persons or of sameness. God is not like us. Some would take this passage to mean that simply this, that that, that you have to be persistent. And this, in this practical example, you have to pester an indifferent God until you receive the justice you so want and desire. That God is just, just as compassionless, just as indifferent. He is a deistic God dwelling way, way up in the heavens. And He won't give you anything that you need. He has started the earth and He has left it. And He has nothing more to do with it. And you're left to your own devices. But if you pester Him enough, He just might give you what you want. That's not in any way a picture of the God of the Bible. Somehow this, this idea that I have to harangue God before he will act. Many of us have seen children in, in the grocery stores, and we've all had children. We've had six, and, you know, you, you're in the grocery store. There's a lot going on all around you, and, and the babies are there, and, 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 and this one wants something, and that one's reaching for something on the shelf and putting things into the cart you have no intention of buying. And the other one's just thrown something on the floor that's just broken everywhere. And the other one's pulling the hair of the other one. And we all know what that's like. And so things happen that afterwards you realize, geez, I never would have done that except, except for the fact that they were driving me crazy in the moment. And so as one child in the basket says, Mommy, can I have this? Mommy, can I have this? Mommy, can I have this? And you've answered 15 times, no. Eventually, you might be so worn down by your circumstances, the fact that you have to go into the bathroom with those three children while you're in the grocery store, or some other circumstance, that finally you say, okay, if it will shut you up, okay. Not that we would use those harsh terms. 
That is not the God we serve. And that is not what God is like. That may be what we are like, but isn't it true that God has said, I am not like you. You thought that I was like you, but I am not like you. And don't we need to remember that from time to time, that our God is just not like us? We think sometimes, dear Christians, we do. We sometimes do think that God is indifferent. We sometimes do think, and we assume things about God, that God is not, he does not care about us. That God does not really care about our circumstances. That he really doesn't know about our great need. And sometimes we accuse our God of distance, of indifference, of a lack of justice. We need to remember that he is not like us. He is not like this unfeeling, uncaring judge who feared no one and was out without compassion. He's not like the God who in this verse 7 and 8 says he will give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Jesus asks a rhetorical question. Will he delay long over them? It's a rhetorical question. Answer it immediately within the following stanza. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So what can we make of this passage this morning by way of application and exhortation with regard to prayer in the Christian life? First and foremost, I want you to call to mind to whom you're praying. God, who is compassionate, patient, who pays careful attention to his children, who does not needlessly delay, whose delays serve his decree, whose delays serve his great wisdom, whose delays serve his hidden purposes, God does not needlessly delay. God does not ignore your cries. In fact, he hears them all. He pays careful attention to his children. He is wise beyond our understanding. We struggle with perceived delays and with misunderstood non-answers. But frankly, oftentimes the Lord does not give us what we desire because it would do us the most harm. There are other times that we pray for things selfishly. God intends to do far more in us and for us than we would ever ask, imagine, or think because our askings fall far short of what God intends for us. We are content. We are content, as C.S. Lewis has said so well, with mud pies in the slums rather than a day a day by the shore. And we ask for so little for ourselves But God has his intention to give us so very much according to his wisdom. We pray not to a God who is indifferent, but to a God who hears. If if we knew that God heard every single word that we prayed, would would we be more fervent in prayer? I think we would. But doesn't he? Doesn't he? And not by virtue of how excellent your prayers are or how, how, how non-distracted you are by circumstances and children and everything else. But because of the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ, he hears every single word. Every moment, every day, however brief, however quickly uttered, 
We don't pray in order to convince God or cajole Him into action, but because He does hear our voice and He does have compassion on our need. Overwhelmingly, time after time in the course of my life, He has demonstrated that He has heard my prayer and He has provided for me. And yet I still doubt Him. Shame on me. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The wick, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. There is a God who is near to all who would call upon him in truth. The second thing we ought to learn by way of practical application is simply this, that there is an oughtness about prayer. There is a necessity about prayer. Pray. Pray, dear friend. Pray pray about everything. I'm, I'm reminded of Susanna Wesley who, <clears throat> who would pull up. She had 22 children and she would sit in the kitchen in the mornings. She would pull up her apron over her head and she would pray. And the children knew that she was to be left alone. There was a, hu- a hubbub of noise around her in a busy household, but, but she prayed and she was committed to prayer. I don't know what you have to do, but... If you have to go into the bathroom, if you have to get a, just a few moments and someone has to let you be free from the children for half an hour, if you have to call a babysitter, if you have to wake up early before the children get up, if you, if you have to get out in your car in the midday work day and take your lunchtime out in your car, if that's what you've got to do, You do what you have to do. If you have to stay up at night, if you have to stand up because you're so tired at night, and so you stand up and you walk around your living room and you pray in that way, then that's what you do because you love God and you know that He hears your voice. The only impediment to your prayer, dear friend, the only impediment is your lack of faith. May God enable us to pray Pray about everything, to pray everywhere, to pray all the time, and and to not stop praying. And when we can't pray, to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to pray. Matthew 6, 6, But you, when you pray, enter into the closet, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Pray with consistently. Pray with fervency. Pray with perseverance. Pray believing that God hears every single word. Because he does. Don't pray on the basis of the percentage of your your requests visibly fulfilled or answered. But pray because you know that your God, your adorable God, I'm not using that in a cute way, but your God who is worthy to be adored, hears all of it. Pray on the basis of his omnipotency. Pray on pray on the on the basis of God's all powerful omniscience. Pray on the basis of his extreme potency to address every need, to provide in every possible way everything you could ever need. Pray on the basis of the power and promise of God. Pray in light of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are often frustrated with a perceived lack of answers, but Jesus answers 
our desire for his immediacy, the immediacy of his answer. And he asks the rhetorical question, now will not God, if this is a comparison, if if this man who is an unjust judge, and he doesn't fear God and he doesn't fear man, if he eventually will, because of the irritation of this woman, address her needs, isn't it true that God who loves you and loved you before you ever came into being on this earth, according to his decree, he loved you long before you ever breathed a single breath. Isn't it true that he will speedily address your needs? The way that God intends speedily to address your needs is found in verse 8. I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Do you see the connection there? God's speedy address of your greatest need is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's address of your deepest, greatest, most prevailing need is to stand before God with joy inexpressible and sin and the enemy of your soul that resides within you and the constant yielding to sin that you and I are constantly guilty of The speedy response of a God who sees your need of justice and of cleansing and of renewal is sending the Lord Jesus Christ to come and make all things right. And we look at life and we say, it's it's been 2,000 years since he's walked upon this earth. But do you remember that Peter, when he considered the concerns of the congregation to whom he's writing, he says, beloved, remember this, that a thousand years with the Lord is like a day. And so you and I, we say, when will the Lord come and make all things right? And when will justice reign upon this earth? And when will sin cease? And when will I stand before the Lord with joy inexpressible? When the Lord comes. When the Lord comes. And that should give us a desire to see the Lord. That should give us a constant refrain of Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. The third thing that we learn by way of practical application from this text is, in light of God's faithfulness in answering prayer, when Jesus comes again, will he find faith on the earth? And I think I think that, that Christ is saying this very personally to his particular disciples. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And that's to be applied to each and every single disciple he's speaking to. And it's to be applied to each and every one of us. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, will he find us constant in the faith? Will he find us still faithful? Will he find us still believing? Will he find you praying? Will he find you praying and in the faith, not having lost heart? Consider this woman. She had no reason to go to this judge because he refused to hear her. She had no standing with him. She was resourceless. She had no hope of being heard. And yet she persisted. But did you think about the text and did you make the connection that that's not who you are? (laughs) You see this woman? She is approaching a judge with whom she has zero connection. She has no resources. She has no trust. 
He is in fact opposed to her and he is completely indifferent to her. She is the least valued in society, at least in that time. A woman and a widow. She had nothing. But you're not like that because you're a child of God. And we're told that if we are children of the living God, we have an immediate access into the very presence of God. We are not like that woman. We are, in fact, God's beloved children. We are not resourceless. We have the riches and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to go not with empty hands, but rather with hands that have nothing in and of ourselves, but plead the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't go resourceless to our Father. We go in the name and in the blood of Christ every single time. And we go on the basis as we approach the throne of grace in prayer. We go on the basis of God's intention to love us and to command for us to pray. We go based upon his command that you need to approach me. I command you to come to me. And as you come to me, I will hear you. And that's why we go to God. And that's why we pray. Because you're not just a widow. You're not just a person without resources. You're a beloved child of God. And you don't need the intercession of another human being. And, and I, I, I've got to qualify that. We need to pray for one another. We, we depend upon one another lifting up each other before the throne of grace and bearing one another's burdens. What I'm talking about is we need no other intercessor. We need no other priest. It's a wonderful thing when others can pray for us and appeal to Christ on our behalf. But that's what, not what we're talking about here. There is no obstruction, in other words, between you and God. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal and high priest of God, stands between you and him. And when you go to God in prayer, Christ is making intercession for you. Your prayers are no less valuable than any other person on the face of this earth. And God will hear you just like he will hear every other person because you're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You belong to God and Christ intercedes for you. This parable is for disciples of Jesus Christ identified in this passage as the elect of God. You're numbered amongst the particular. If you have faith in Christ, you have a sincere understanding of the gospel. You have repented of your sins and turned in true and lasting saving faith to Christ. This parable is for you. You are numbered amongst the particular people of God for whom Christ died. You also have, you also have been loved by God from before the world was created. And he has set his eternal love upon you. And he has loved you with, with a love with which he has loved his only begotten son. The love he loves the son with is the love that he loves you with. So your faithfulness and perseverance and prayer are a demonstration of trust in Jesus Christ and in your hope in his return. Prayerlessness is faithlessness. Faith that has lost its fervor, its saltiness. And where prayer fails and hope has failed and where hope has failed, faith has failed. There's no such thing as a non-praying Christian. There's no such thing. If you're not praying today, you need to go to God in Christ, beg his forgiveness, and ask the Lord to give you a praying spirit.
Ask the Lord to give you the the language and, and a commitment to prayer. If you're not praying today, there is something seriously, intrinsically, fatally wrong with regard to your faith and your following Jesus Christ. Dear friend, I encourage you to pray. J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop, said this, Do we ever feel a secret inclination to hurry our prayers? Or to shorten our prayers and become careless about our prayers? Or omit our prayers altogether? Let us be sure that when we do, that is, it is a direct temptation from the devil. He is trying to sap and undermine the very citadel of our souls and to cast us down to hell. Let us resist the temptation and cast it behind our backs. Let us resolve to pray unsteadily, patiently, perseveringly, and let us never doubt that it does us good. However long the answer may be in coming, still let us pray on. Whatever sacrifice and self-denial it may cost us, still let us pray on. Beloved ones, in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, in conclusion, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer, in Everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we give thanks to you for this word this morning. We ask that you would help us to pray. Uh, teach us to pray, O oh God. We, we do not know how to pray as we ought. <clears throat> And oftentimes, oh God, our <clears throat> our internal prayer life and our conversation with the Lord and our motivation in prayer falls far short of what we ought to be. We ought to be praying in such a way where we know that our our lifeblood comes from a relationship with, with God in prayer. We ought to pray in such a way that it is the absolute delight of our soul, the apex of our day, the joy of our heart the longing of our heart to be in the presence of God, knowing that he hears our voice. Oh, Lord, teach us and increase our longing and our faithfulness in prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 522. 522. calls me near there Jesus shows a smiling face and waits to answer prayer that rich atoning blood which sprinkled round we see provides for those who come to God and all prevail soul ask what thou wilt thou canst not be too bold since his own blood for thee he spilled what else can he withhold beyond thine utmost wants his love and power can bless to praying souls he Always friends more than they can express. Thine in 
peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your minds and hearts in the knowledge of God and of his love and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessing of our Lord God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all and remain with you always. Amen and amen.